Sorry to break up good conversation. Um, please continue those afterwards. We, we love um, hearing the, just the conversation happening and, and, and getting to know one another. That is why that part in our service exists, to connect and to say hi to people that you haven't seen in a long time. My name is Jeremy. I'm one of the pastors here at Providence Road. If we have not had an opportunity to meet, I uh, just wanted to introduce myself. Um, I do not normally go by Brother Hager, Brother Jeremy, whatever Jay said. Um, it's because I have a sports coat on. He feels the need to call me brother this morning. So I usually don't wear a sports coat, but thought, hey, special occasion, I put it on or find someone's to borrow because I don't own any. So maybe that was what happened. But um, anyway, I should have started this off. He is risen. There we go. There we go. That's a traditional kind of greeting. Um, goes back centuries in the church um, on, this, uh, on Easter when we observe and, and celebrate um, Easter. Let me pray for us one more time for, for our time in the Word, and then we'll jump in. God, we're so thankful for this day. And this is uh, a day to celebrate, a day to celebrate um, who you are and what you've done in your son, Jesus, and the fact that he's alive. And that has changed everything in the world and changed the lives of many people in this room as a result of your son's resurrection. And we're so thankful for that. But also, I know that not everyone is coming in here in a celebratory mood. And so I pray as we look at hope today, and we look at the most hopeful event and message that the Bible has to offer us, I pray you would meet people where they are. I pray that you would meet people in their sadness, meet people in pain, meet people in anger, meet people in doubt. Just pray you would meet us here this morning, and we trust that through your spirit you're going to do that. And we love you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. When we're talking about the resurrection, there are really two aspects or two questions that we have to wrestle with, that we need to address when talking about the resurrection. Number one is, did it happen? Did the resurrection happen? That's a, one of the major things we have to wrestle with when we're talking about um, this, this day, this day that we observe and celebrate today. The second thing or aspect of um, the resurrection is the question, okay, if it happened, or even if it didn't happen, so what? Who cares? What's the big deal? Right, why, why do we make such a big deal about this day? Why, maybe you're saying if you're a guest and you haven't been in church um, and you're not a follower of Jesus, why does the church make a, such a big deal about this day? Well, oftentimes, even though you, you maybe don't think, haven't thought about the resurrection, maybe some of you here don't, don't think about it and you haven't thought about it in a long time, the resurrection, we believe as followers of Jesus, actually happened. And it's part of the reality of the world we live in. But you have to see, I think, sometimes that there are implications for the resurrection. There's important things that come along with the re resurrection. It affects everything. And once you believe that, then you can start investigating and wrestling and, and looking at the evidence and all the historical facts. All of these things surround the resurrection. It's similar to uh, kind of a, a piece of my life. I, uh, those of you who know me well, I don't have, um, I don't have great hearing and I have it for a while in one of my ears. And Nicole, my wife, for a while, in her kind way, 
she, starting in my mid-30s or so, she would say, hey, hey, babe, I think your, I think your hearing's going downhill. I don't, you're not hearing well anymore, right? And I kind of denied it. I'm like, you know, I'm in my mid-30s. That's, that's just you. I think you're, maybe, maybe you're not talking loud enough. You're not talking clear enough. And she continued to nudge me and nudge me of the reality of the situation, so much so that I started paying attention to things a little bit more. I started paying attention to the fact that I always put the phone on my left side and not my right side. And that volume bar on the TV kept getting higher and higher and higher. And I felt like it was the same volume as it always been before. And then after the fact, um, after I really started to see this as a problem, she told me, she said, you know, there's oftentimes at night when we pray together and say goodnight before we, we, we go to sleep, um, we, she would say good night. I would say good night, and then we would kind of put our heads on the pillow. And a few seconds later, she'd say, "I love you." I would not. I wouldn't say anything. <laughs> so, um, because I had my my uh, my good ear down, my bad ear up on the pillow, and so for the longest time, she just felt she was giving me the benefit of the doubt. I'm glad she just thought I I fell asleep that quick, like I was already asleep. That's why I wasn't paying attention to her. But then over time, I finally began to see reality. I started seeing the implications of my hearing issues and my conversations and having had to have people repeat themselves and all, all these different scenarios. So I went and got it checked out. I went to the audiologist and they said, sure enough, you're like 90 to 95% deaf in your right ear. We need to do something about it. And finally, I, I broke down um, as I, me thinking I'm a pretty young man still, and I got a hearing aid in my right ear. So I have a hearing aid now in my right ear because that's reality. I had to come to the grips with, I didn't think this was affecting me. I don't really have hearing loss. This isn't an issue. But over time, I saw the evidence, and it built up to finally being like, yeah, I'm going to go check this out further. And sure enough, it was true. That was my reality. So the two questions with the resurrection, did it happen? And um, so what? Who cares? What's the big deal about it? Let's take briefly the first question. We only have about 30 minutes today. We're only going to touch on the first question. I really want to spend most of our time on the second question. But on the did it happen question, there are so many proofs, so much historical evidence, uh, physical evidence that the resurrection did indeed happen. I think one of the most, uh, the strongest cases for it were the 500 witnesses that saw Jesus after he was raised from the dead. Now, if you have 500 people witness anything, that is a slam duck case closed in court of law. Like you win, that size wins. If they have 500 witnesses to anything, that side is going to win. And there were eyewitness accounts of Jesus after he was raised from the dead. You have other things as well. You have Jesus down to the detail, tiny detail, fulfilling the prophecies that were told about him 500 to 1,000 years before he was born. You have all the physical kind of circumstantial evidence surrounding his death and his resurrection and the tomb and all of these kinds of things. There's enough historical fact and evidence to say the resurrection did indeed happen. And that's not even including what the Bible has to say about the resurrection happening. So for now, we're going to assume that the resurrection did happen, because I want to get to that next question and spend the majority of our time there. So what? Or who cares? Paul says about the resurrection, the apostle Paul, a leader in the early church, wrote a lot of the New Testament, 
in his book called 1 Corinthians in chapter 15. If you want a, a deeper dive into the resurrection, um, 1 Corinthians 15 is, I think, the best chapter to do that in all of the scriptures. But Paul says in, in chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians that if the resurrection didn't happen, if it didn't happen, he says things like, our preaching is in vain, our faith is in vain, our faith is futile, we are dead in our sins. And above all people, above all the people, all the groups of people in the world that we could pity, Christians are to be pitied the most if the resurrection didn't happen. This is how massively important that this event that we look at today is to not just Christians, but I think the world itself. We're all created to live in a story. God um, creates that story. He, he, he creates us and every single one of us in this room are looking for things to get from our story. We're looking for purpose. We're looking for love. We're looking for approval. We're looking for acceptance. We're looking for hope that things are gonna be okay in the near future and the distant future. We want that hope. We want that security. This is just what it means to be a human being, not just a follower of Jesus, but a human being. This is why the, the, the majority of good stories that we read in books, see on TV, and in movies have these elements um, built into the storyline, built into the characters, because all human beings resonate with these kinds of deep philosophical life questions. And the resurrection has, 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 has implications for all of those things. Maybe you're in here and, and you're, you're asking the question, how does the resurrection speak to my past? It does. The resurrection speaks to our past. Maybe there's something going on um, in your life right now or even in the, that you've done in the past and you think um, that you don't want to do it anymore. You're tired of it. You feel enslaved to it. You feel like it's not bringing you the promise of happiness and joy that it once did. And you want out. But you can't stop doing that thing. And so you're, you feel shameful about it. And in your shame, you medicate by doing more of that thing and the cycle continues. The resurrection speaks to this. The resurrection of Jesus speaks to those of you who struggle with anxiety and fear and, and, and worrying about tomorrow, right? When the future is uncertain, when you are awaiting the diagno health diagnosis of yourself or someone you love, or maybe your kids are going through a specific issue, one of your children, and you, don't, you have no answers to how to help them get through this particular issue. Or maybe you're close to graduating, and after you graduate, the future is uncertain. The resurrection of Jesus speaks to that. The resurrection of Jesus speaks to doubt. There's some of you in this room who are doubting the goodness and the love and the relevance of Jesus and what that has to your life. You have questions about Christianity that you just can't seem to answer. And you, you're doubting that, that there really could be more freedom and joy found in following Jesus than the, the life that you're currently living. And maybe some of you are here are, are really uh, uh, kind of, you're grabbing onto your religious performance as your identity. In this part of the country, there, there are still many people that base their identity and their life around how they're doing morally or how they're doing religiously. Yet you don't know Jesus, you don't follow him, you don't love him, you don't know him, but you are, consider yourself a religious person. And the problem with this is that when you have a really good week and you're doing really well, you feel really good about yourself. 
Maybe even we'll look down upon others who aren't doing as well, and that self-righteous thing puffs up. And when you have a bad week, like we all do, you'll be despondent and depressed, and you're in shame and guilt, and then you'll hide. You'll have to fake it or pretend things are better than they actually are and pull away from community. The resurrection of Jesus speaks to that as well. The resurrection of Jesus speaks to all of our stories, no matter where we're at. And today we're going to look at John chapter 20. And John, in this particular chapter, includes three encounters with Jesus. Um, Two individuals and one group of people. He includes these encounters because he wants us to see the implications that the resurrection has on people's lives. Real people like you and me. People with real issues, real problems, real, real life happening to them, and yet Jesus meets them where they're at. We have Mary Magdalene, we have the disciples as a whole, and we have Thomas. So let's look at John 20, starting in verse 1. These first 10 verses, John's just explaining what happened. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark. That dark is obviously the time of day. The sun had not come up yet, but it was, it's also symbolic of, of the mood and the atmosphere amongst the disciples. This was a dark period in their life. And she saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going towards the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Now, you need to know that John, the follower, the, the apostle John wrote this letter, and so this is a jab at Peter. He's basically saying, hey, I outran Peter. Peter couldn't answer it back because Peter had already written his book. So John gets the last laugh here. He's saying, hey, you know what? I outran Peter, just, just so you guys know. Verse 5, and stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not, did not go in. Verse 6, then Simon Peter came, following him. Again, another jab there. He's following me. And went into the tomb. He saw the linen clothes lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloth, but folded up in a place by itself. Now, this is one of those kind of the evidence, kind of the internal evidence for the resurrection happening. One of the, the theories is that thieves stole the body of Jesus. Now, one just off the cuff kind of evidence, we, we kind of know that why would thieves take time to fold clothes if they, they were stealing a body? The last thing they would worry about is taking time to fold the clothes in the tomb. Okay, it's evidence for the resurrection, once again. Verse 8 Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in. There's John again, being bra- braggy here, and he saw and believed. So John says, and he, John says, I believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. So there's this part of he's believing or he's, he's starting to believe that this could have actually happened. Then the disciples went back to their homes. Now we get to see Mary Magdalene. Okay, verse 11. Here's our first kind of character, our first encounter with Jesus. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. So she goes and tells them, and then, and then she comes back to the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head, one at the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? 
Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. And she says she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher. See, up until this moment, she didn't recognize Jesus. But the moment she heard Jesus say her name, something switched inside of her, and she knew this was Jesus. Verse 17, Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and to your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. Let's talk about Mary for a bit. This was a, a woman who had, Jesus had a major impact on in her life. Right, so she was broken up, she was sad, she was anxious about this whole situation. Like Jesus had changed her, Jesus had saved her, Jesus had redeemed her, and now he's gone. And somebody took the body, and this is to take a dead body out of a tomb, that would be a horrible way to desecrate a corpse. So she is beside herself, that's why she first thinks this is the gardener. She says, Let me, tell me where they've taken him, so I can go and, and, and do the right thing, perform the right burial rites, and, and the spices, and all of those things. And then Jesus says her name. The first time we, we get a glimpse of Mary Magdalene in the biblical story is actually in Luke, um, the Gospel of Luke 8, uh, verses 1 and 2. Listen to this. Soon afterward, he went on through the cities, this is Jesus, and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him. And listen to this. And also some women, women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out. So at this particular time, Luke kind of records that there are some women also following Jesus. And in particular, one of these women had seven demons. She was tormented by evil spirits, and her name is Mary Magdalene. Now, Mary was a Jewish woman from a fishing town called Magdala. Her name is mentioned 12 times in the Gospels. That is more than the majority of the other apostles. Um, and we can only imagine what it was like for Mary to suffer this fate before she met Jesus. To be marginalized and outcast, to be considered the kind of the crazy woman in the community. Nobody understood. Everybody just knew to stay away from her because she was controlled by these evil spirits. How awful her life must have been. And then she meets Jesus. He restores her. He changes her identity. He accepts her into this this ragtag family of disciples following him and casts the demon out, heals her, and she's beginning to follow him. And when she confesses, she says, teacher. She sees him now as her teacher, her, 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 her rabbi, the one whom she's learning from and is spending time with. And so you can imagine when Mary saw that the, that the tomb was empty that she was distraught. Not only is she suffering and sad because he died, and she doesn't know he's going to come back from the dead, and then his body's gone. But Jesus knows exactly how to minister to her in a tender, very calm way, engages her, then says her name. And she clings to that. She, she, she wraps her arm around Jesus like a child would around parents who've been gone a long time and says, and says, and says Rabbi. And he even says, don't cling to me for I have not yet ascended to the Father. So he's not saying, hey, get away from me, don't hug me. He's saying, listen, Mary, listen, don't, don't, don't wrap too tightly. I'm going to be here for a while. I'm going to be here for weeks, and we're going to talk, and we're going to spend time together, and then I'm going to send the Holy Spirit into you. 
So don't cling to me like, like this is the last time you're ever going to see me. He speaks to her tenderly. And the other interesting fact here is that Jesus appeared first to a woman. And women in the Jewish law at this day and age, their, their testimony, their witness was not allowed to be, not allowed in court on court cases. Okay? They weren't allowed to, to share testimony or witnesses. That's just normal women. And then you take a woman that, like Mary was, who still had probably this past from, oh yeah, that was the, that was the woman who was possessed by the demons. That was the, the crazy woman. Because she had just come out of that kind of lifestyle. And yet Jesus chooses to appear to her before anyone else. Now, if you're trying to fabricate a story, if you're trying to get a story to go viral and believable and, 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 and kind of fake a story, which is one of the kind of the pushbacks to the resurrection, you don't start with Mary. You do not start your story, your viral story, with a woman like Mary. You find the, the, most, the most high esteemed man in the community that, will, that most people will respect, and you show yourself to him, and then the story has more validity and will take off. He chose to reveal himself to Mary. Why? Because it actually happened. It's a true story. It's not a story that was made up in order to try to, 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 to fool people or to fake people. Okay? Jesus revealed himself first to Mary. And then he, sends, he gives her the task of going and telling the other, the other guys, the other disciples, the other followers of him. He speaks tenderly to her. He cares about her emotions. He even calls her and the other disciples brothers and sisters. Mary was enslaved and was broken and is now given hopeful grace. See, God, the resurrection in Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus gave her this, this grace, gave her this new identity, gave her this hope that she was a new person. And maybe some of you resonate with Mary. You think your past or what you're, maybe who you are in the present actually defines you. It's not. That is not your identity. Mary's identity wasn't anymore the crazy woman who was possessed by demons. Her identity was a daughter of God and a follower of Jesus. If you're in Christ, Jesus is the one who gives you your new identity. Not the people around you, not yourself, not the culture, not the people who speak down upon you, not your behavior, not your sin. That is not what defines you. When you're in Christ, you are defined by being someone who's loved by Jesus that he died for. And that is such good news for those of us who have pasts, who have guilt, who have shame, who wonder, can God love me? If he only knew what I did, could he really love me? And the answer is yes. The resurrection of Jesus gives hope to the hopeless. Let's look in the next group of people. Verse 19. The disciples, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. And Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. When he, said, when he had said this, he showed up, showed him his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I'm sending you. And when he said, had said this, he breathed on them. And said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven with them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. So these disciples, they were fearful. They're probably fearing a lot of things. Fearing the Jews. Fearing the Romans. Fearing what Jesus was going to do to them the next time he saw them. Because they had abandoned him. Peter was a part of this group. And he was the chief abandoner, right? Denied Jesus three times there when Jesus was arrested and was being crucified. They were freaked out. 
They were scared. And every, rightfully so, Jesus, there's a part of Jesus we should fear. He's going to come back on a second coming, riding on a horse. He's going to come back as king and judge. And that Jesus we will fear. But Jesus doesn't introduce himself to them in that way. First thing he says to them, peace be with you. Peace. Relax. It's okay. And he begins to engage them. He begins to show them the evidence that he is, in fact, alive, that he has risen from the dead. And then he sends them. He shows them who he is, and then he sends them out immediately as missionaries. They would build the church from this point forward. Another evidence for the resurrection really happening, most of these closest, or all of the closest disciples would die a martyr's death following Jesus. All but one John, he was exiled to die on a lonely island, right? And many of the other close followers of Jesus also died for their faith. People don't die for made-up stories. If the disciples were trying to kind of pull one over on the culture and really trying to get this, 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 um, this, this thing started and, and, and to kind of move and this, this movement to happen, they wouldn't have died if they knew it was a fake story. You don't give up your life for things you think are fake, and you're the one making up the story. They saw Jesus. They knew it was Jesus, and they were willing to give their lives for the sake of Christ and the mission. The disciples were gripped by fear and shame, and now they're sent out with hopeful peace and confidence. Again, the resurrection changed the disciples in that moment, gave them hope, gave them peace, gave them confidence. Maybe you're gripped by anxiety and fear. These last two years have given us a lot to feel anxious about. Maybe you're trying to figure out what's going to happen next. When's something else going to come up that I'm going to have to worry about? When's the next thing that's going to happen that's going to cause me panic and fear and paralysis and not being able to function normally? Maybe your insecurities have been taken away from you that you normally look to for security the last couple of years. Maybe you have some religious pride like Peter did and you're failing right now in your religiosity and you're wondering if God still loves you. Does Jesus love you apart from your religious deeds? He does. We'll see in the next chapter, if you keep reading in John, how he restores Peter. He has this really cool, intimate conversation with Peter um, on, on, on a beach, and he, he restores him formally kind of to his, his family. He says the Father has sent him, and he sends them in the same way. And then he gives them the Holy Spirit to empower them to do what he's called them to do. And we're told later on that the, the fruit of the Spirit are things like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, things that all human beings want, things that all human beings are searching for, and we get that through the Holy Spirit. Let's look at our final character. We have Thomas. Verse 24, now Thomas, one of the 12 called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see his hands, the mark of the nails, and I place my finger in the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. So Thomas is seriously doubting here. Verse 26, eight days later, his disciples were, again in, were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas said in verse 28, my Lord and my God. There's Thomas's confession, right? He says, I believe now. I've seen it. 
You're alive. It's not a fake. It's not a body double. You are the one who I knew. You are the one who was crucified. You are the one who was put in the tomb, I believe. You see, Thomas doesn't have, um, he, ha- he is doubting, but he doesn't have, there are different kinds of doubting, right? He's not doubting because he, he, he's doubting whether Jesus is good, right? Like he, he knows Jesus is good. He spent time with him. He's not trying to create his own um, morality and what's right and wrong, and he's doubting if Jesus really is, um, wor- it, 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 you can't really find freedom and joy in Jesus. He's not doubting that. It's also not an intellectual doubt. Thomas was a, was a Jewish man. He would have understood the, the miracles that God did, the, the flood, the parting of the Red Sea. It wasn't an intellectual doubt with Thomas either. He had a strong foundation to his faith. It was a doubt coming from disappointment. right? That He, 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 he kind of hitched his wagon to Jesus. He left everything. He was following Jesus. He thought, this is the king. This is the Messiah. This is the one I'm going to follow. He thought he was going to be raised up as king, and then he put his hope in this man And this man was crucified in a horrible way. And now this man, his hope is lying in a tomb. And he's despondent. He's depressed. He's doubting, what what, what is life about now? Everything I've staked my life on is gone. That's the kind of doubt Thomas is having. Maybe you have doubts. Maybe it's your baggage from previous church experience. Or maybe you've been wounded by a Christian leader. Or you've been wounded by another follower of Jesus, and you're just like, I can't do it anymore. Maybe it's intellectual. Maybe you're still wrestling with things of the faith. Maybe you're doubting whether you want to give up that thing that you think is promising you freedom and joy that it's not. And you're really doubting, does Jesus come through on the promises he makes? Let me tell you, for anybody who's doubting, God made you. He knows you. He loves you. And he's proven it in the person of Jesus. He's proven it by sending his son to live a life here on this, this broken, messy world. Live a life that, that, that all of us are required to live, but none of us could ever live up to. He lived that perfect life. He died a death that all of us deserve to die. Took the wrath of God upon himself that was, that was aiming for us. He takes the wrath of God upon himself. Takes our sin he gives us his perfect righteousness, which, which justifies us. And then he proves it all, shows us who he really was, and his stamp of approval is he rose on the third day, conquering sin, Satan, and death, and showing us and the world, I am who I said I was. I am God, and everything I did came true exactly the way I'd planned it. He saves us. He saves sinners like you and I. That is how you know that God loves you. Will there be doubts? Absolutely. Will there be questions about faith? Absolutely. But please don't doubt the fact that God sent his son to die for sinners like you and I. Don't doubt that because it happened. And we know that it's true because of the resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus gives hope to the hopeless in the stories that we walk in. Here's a review of the people that encountered Jesus, Mary, the disciples, and Thomas. Hopefully you can all connect with one of those stories, maybe all three of them. The resurrection has implications in our lives. Let's look at verse 29. Jesus said to him, this is Thomas still, have you believed because you have seen me? Listen to this, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. That's everybody in this room. That's you and I. Everyone who has not seen him yet believed. Blessed are those, Jesus tells Thomas. 
Interesting thought there. Then John says in, 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 in verse 30, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that, here it is, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Believe. Here it is again. And that by believing, there's that word again, you may have life in his name. Have life in his name. Eternal life forever with the Father, absolutely. But life here now in the present, abundant life, absolutely. This is the life that is promised as a result of the resurrection. John is writing this so that we may believe. If you're a follower of Jesus in here, I pray that you believe in a deeper way as a result of of looking at the resurrection. If you're not a follower of Jesus in here, I would encourage you to put your faith in Jesus. He is who he said he was. You've heard the gospel this morning. John is writing these things to you so that you may believe. It's just humbling yourself saying, I need you. I'm a sinner. I need grace. I need mercy. Like all the ones in the story, they, at one point when they encountered Jesus, they relented. They humbled themselves and said, yes, Jesus, you're my Lord. You're my Savior. Help me. One of my favorite kind of teachings that... Um, is often brought up on Easter, but I, I'll bring it up again because I love it, is C.S. Lewis's um, um, kind of teaching on Jesus. And really, there's only three ways you can respond to Jesus. No, no more. You, you, get to, you get three choices of, of what you say about Jesus. Number one, you can call him a liar. Everything he said was a lie. The resurrection kind of knocks that out of the water. Because there's only one person who's ever died, come back from the dead, and is still alive, and that's Jesus. And there's proof for that. We see the implications of that this morning. The second thing is you can call him a lunatic. This is just a crazy man. Walking around doing crazy stuff, talking crazy things. And if we were there listening to Jesus, we probably would have thought he was crazy as well sometimes. But a crazy man doesn't die and come back from the dead, reveal himself to his disciples. And fulfill everything he said he was going to fulfill, he fulfilled it. A lunatic doesn't do that. So C.S. Lewis thinks you're just left with the third choice, and that is to call him Lord. You have to call him Lord. I mean, you could try to call him something else, but the, 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 the person and work of Jesus and what he did, primarily in the resurrection, I think forces us to, to consider calling him Lord. What other thing are you going to call Jesus? Where else are you going to go for salvation and freedom and joy and peace and identity and security and all those things those characters in the story we looked at today are looking for? Where are you going to go for those things? It's Jesus. I want to close with this. This is a, a poem from a guy named, an early church father named John Chrysostom. He says this, Where, O oh, death, is your sting? Where, O oh, Hades, or hell, is your victory? Christ is ridden, risen, and you are cast down. Christ is risen, and the demons have fallen. Christ is risen and the angels rejoice. Christ is risen and life is liberated. Christ is risen and no one remains dead in a tomb. For Christ, having risen from the dead, has become the first fruits of those that have fallen asleep. To him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I'm, I'm so thankful for your word. I'm so thankful that we see tangible the tangible story of the resurrection. We see what happened. We can wrestle with it. 
I'm so thankful that Jesus did not stay dead in a tomb or he'd have been just another good teacher, maybe a magician that does cool tricks, a liar, a lunatic. But the fact that the tomb is empty and he is alive shows that he is Lord. And he welcomes us into his family. He says, come, come to me. All who are sinful, all who need rest, all who realize they're sick, come to me. So I pray as we move into a time of communion, I pray that we would have that same posture, that we would come to him, that we would trust him, that we would love him because he's proven that he loved us first. It's in your beautiful and powerful son's name that we pray. Amen.